Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is where we're going to be hanging out today, chapter 3. If you do need a Bible, Daniel has some in the back, and uh, just raise your hand and he will give one to you. 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you are new to the Bible, you can find a table of contents and uh, find a page number in the, the Bible that you have and easily find 2 Timothy that way. Chapter 3, we're going to focus on two verses primarily this morning, but to give you the whole context, I'm going to read the entire chapter of 2 Timothy 3. So follow along with me as I read. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching. My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, any persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, and at, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in, in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray and ask God for help this morning as we study. Father, we do ask that your Spirit uh, wake us up to the truth that you have here, that we might uh, be able to see clearly uh, your Word revealed to us through your prophets, through the apostles, uh, and, and preserved the, these, these pages that we are holding in our hands, uh, this sword that is sharp, God, would you use this truth to pierce our hearts this morning? Awaken us a greater love for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, it is New Year's. How many of you do New Year's resolutions? Okay. 
So nobody's accomplishing anything new this year. Um, I, I sort of make them uh, without listing them out. Does that make any sense? I, I uh, think through some things that I would like to do differently uh, when January starts. And one of my quasi-New Year's resolutions every year is to uh, hit the gym and bulk up with about 15 pounds of muscle and look like Daniel King Robertson and, and then become a boxer. That is my goal every year. And it's, once again, my goal starting this January 1st. All right, here's the problem. Uh, as, as many of us who uh, either, most people want to put on 15 or take off 15, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so we're all going to do something with our health. Here's the problem. Uh, we don't really want to work out. We don't want to exercise. And so March rolls around. And you'll find me complaining to Daniel King Robertson about the fact that I'm as gangly as ever and, uh, and haven't put on any muscle. And Daniel will ask me, uh, how much have you been exercising? How much have you been working out? And I'll say, I never said I was going to work out. <laughs> I said I wanted to put on some muscle. And he would say, well, you're crazy. Because in order to put on some muscle, you have to work out. In order to get healthy, you have to exercise. But a lot of us want to get healthy without exercising, right? Well, let's move from our physical health to our spiritual health. Uh, as a pastor, I'm often sitting across the table with someone who wants to get spiritually healthy. They're not necessarily satisfied with their spiritual health. And so maybe they've come to me for help, uh, for some direction. And our conversation will go something like this. I'll ask them, uh, how, uh, how they're doing as far as their personal Bible reading time. And they'll sort of look at me and they'll say, well, um, yeah, I haven't really been reading the Bible a whole lot. And then I'll say something like, well, if you want to get spiritually healthy, if you, if you need some change, you need to read the Bible. And then they'll say something like, well, you don't understand my schedule. I have to be at work at, listen to this, 9 a.m. And I'll say, wow, that's early. And they'll say, I can't, get up, I can't get up 10 minutes earlier. I'm already getting up at 8.45. And, uh, and then when, they get, when I get home, I'm so busy. Uh, there's, there's always something to do, all right? So if they have kids, they're going to blame it on the kids. Or if they don't have kids, they're going to blame it on something else. And uh, then I'll ask them, well, how much TV is in your life? Do you watch much TV? And they'll say, no, just uh, uh, Sons of Anarchy on Thursday nights. On Monday nights, yeah, I do watch something else. On Tuesday nights, I watch Hannah Montana. On Wednesday nights, I don't know. I don't even know what's on TV these days. Uh, Friday nights, movies. All right. Um, my, I'm concerned that on the whole... We as, as believers, Christians in this church in particular, I'm concerned about us in this church, as well as believers across the United States, I'm concerned that we want to become spiritually healthy, we want to be about good, we think of the world, we think of all the good things that we would like to do in the world, we would like to better the world and do good works, etc., etc., yet we are seeking to do it without the weight room of the Scriptures, without the daily exercise of Bible saturation. 
And so, as we think about 2015, and as we enter the new year, what I hope today will be is a simple challenge for you to read the Bible in 2015. I don't necessarily mean read it from cover to cover. You might choose to do that. But I mean on a daily basis, you are eating this book as you would any other food for your breakfast, for your lunch, for your dinner, to the point to where you would get uh, to the point where, where you can't imagine going a day without it. And if you do go a day without it, you feel like you're starving and that you need to get back into the Word. So that's my hope for us this year, and that is my hope for uh, this, this sermon in particular today. So the heart of our text today is going to be 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Those two verses are where I want to focus. It's where I would like to focus our entire time. But in order for us to rightly understand those two verses, it's going to be important that we also understand the context that is surrounding those two verses. So what I want to do is take about half of our time right now focusing on the context and why Paul told Timothy uh, that, uh, th- these words about the Scriptures. And then secondly, I want to focus our second half on those two verses alone. So first, let's talk about the context. Look at verse 1 in your Bible. Chapter 3, 2 Timothy, verse 1. And he says that, understand this, in the last days. Do you see those words, last days? Now what are the last days? Everybody and their mama has an opinion as to what the last days are and when they are. Let me give you my opinion. And this is, I think, the strongest opinion from the Scriptures. The last days is the last era of redemptive history. So this era in between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. His first coming is the babe in the manger, the sinless life, death on the cross for us and for our salvation, risen victoriously from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. From that moment until His second coming, we are in the last days. Now why is that important to understand? What, it's important uh, for this reason. The challenges that we face today in our world, in our era, are no different than the challenges that the New Testament Christians faced right here. No different than the challenges that Timothy faced. Meaning, the, the, the difficulties. The world has changed. Everybody agrees? The world has changed in many ways, yet the difficulties of the last days have remained. So we have been in and we are in the last days. Now, how does he describe the last days? When I was reading this earlier, it caused me to LOL a little bit. As I realized <laughs> that what I'm reading right here is a, just, it's a perfect description of our society that we live in. For example, right there in verse 2, He says that people are lovers of themselves, lovers of money. They're proud. They're arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents. Everybody say amen to that. 
They're ungrateful. They're unholy. They're heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. They're brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If that sounds familiar to you, say yes. It does. Just a little bit. Look at verse 7. I literally did laugh out loud a little bit when I read verse 7 earlier. Always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. We live in the information era. I mean, there is so, we are learning constantly. We spend all of our time just learning, what, even if it's learning stupid stuff like what our friends are eating for dinner or Googling something significant, we are, knowledge is at our fingertips, right? Information, I should say, is at our fingertips, yet without knowledge. We're not getting anywhere with all of our learning. All right, so the first point of context is this. The world is crazy. All right, the world in Timothy's day was crazy. And the world today is still crazy. Now, you might say that's rather pessimistic. I like to think of the world as a better place than, than crazy. Well, one thing we need to remember is this. The Bible is the most realistic book there is. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything. The Bible is not fake. The Bible will not say something about the world that isn't true. The Bible paints for us the picture of the world as we know it really is. And that is crazy. We look around society and we see evidence of the craziness. Moms and dads abusing their children. Lonely people who are hooking up with hundreds just simply to find a sense of love and relationship. People who have power and money taking advantage of those who don't. People that don't have believing that if they had money and riches that they would finally find happiness and satisfaction only to never find it there and to become bitter and angry. The world is godless. The world is tough. It's hard. There is pain all around us. All right, so that's, that's part one of context here is that the world is crazy. All right, now, can you imagine being in battle without any weapon? Imagine being thrown into the middle of some battle right out of the movie Braveheart and you're standing there with nothing. All right, this is akin to walking into this society, this world that we live in, without the Scriptures, our sword. So the second point of the context here that Paul is telling Timothy is, not only is the world crazy, but the Scriptures, the Bible, is still your sword. This is still your trusty sword, your weapon. Let's look at the, let's look at the text here. Look at verse 14. He says, but as for you, all right, so the world is crazy, right? Everybody say amen. Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Paul is saying two things here to Timothy. He's saying, number one, 
don't forget what you have learned. And number two, remember where you learned it. Earlier in this book, in chapter 1, Paul praises the faith of Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice for teaching them and raising him up in the faith. So Paul is saying, listen, as you enter into this crazy world, as you enter into these last days where there is sin and abuse and problems and greed and lust all around you, remember these words that were taught you as you sat on your mother's lap. Remember your grandma's voice as she taught you these things. Remember what you learned. Not only that, but remember where it came from. Meaning these words were not just simply your grandmother's words. These weren't your mama's ideas. But these were, he says, the, the truths from the sacred writings, the Scriptures. Remember the Scriptures that you were taught while you were growing up. They are able, he says, to make you wise for salvation. Now, for some who hear the word sword, as we enter into the world, the Bible is our sword. For some of you, that's, that, that brings to mind terrible images. And I know that thousands of people have indeed used the Bible uh, to abuse people and to beat people up and to harm people and to take advantage and to oppress. But one thing that we must remember is this. That is the fault of wicked, sinful, fake Christians, not the result of the Bible itself. So when we think of the Bible as our sword, what are we, what are we saying? What, what, what images should come to mind as we think of the Bible as our weapon in this world in which we live? Well, here it is. A Bible that is wielded rightly is a life, produces a life that is attractive to the world around us. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, the people of God are told to cling to the Scriptures, to cling to God's commands and observe them. And it says that in doing so, he says all of the nations, meaning all of those who are not part of God's people, not part of Israel, all of the nations will look at Israel and see that they are truly wise. See that they have true understanding, which means this, Israel or church, cling to the Scriptures. Observe all that Christ command, and the world will look at us and see wisdom, see understanding, see something that is attractive. A Bible-saturated man or woman at work becomes an attractive person as they work their job well, as they don't take advantage when their boss is, is, is not looking. Uh, a Bible-saturated father or mother disciplines their children with grace and love, and it's attractive to the world. Two quick points of application here. Number one, you never outgrow the Bible. 
So as we talk about the Bible this morning, this isn't something that we mature beyond. I had a friend named Russ uh, I, when I used to work construction, and I would share the gospel with Russ almost every day. And finally, one day he said, look, I was brought up and, and, and I was taught all of these things about Jesus. But here's the reality, is as I grew up, I left Jesus behind just as I did Santa Claus. And he says, I just see Jesus and Santa and all of these things as, as good for kids, good for maybe weak people that need them. But as I grow up and as we grow into maturity, we can walk away from these things that we were taught as a child. Listen, it's kind of unpopular today to believe something about God that your parents taught you. We live in a world today that, uh, that tells us that we must find everything out for ourselves and on our own. And to believe something that your mom taught you is in some ways, I don't know, it lacks credibility. Listen, the first reason that I believe that Jesus is true is because I was taught it by my mom. The reason that I wake up in the morning and go to the Bible is because my dad taught me that that's what I should do. And he modeled it for me. And as I have lived my life, Christ has been proven true over and over and over again. The power of the Word every morning has been proven true over and over and over again. Now, think of it this way. Children are given brains to saturate and believe everything that their parents tell them as true. This is a God-given gift. So if you have children or if you're going to have children someday or if you have children in your life right now, understand that God has wired them to receive your teaching. This is why abuse from parents is so terrible. This is why parents teaching children wrong things or letting children make up their own minds about you know, everything. Uh, I, I listened to a story on NPR. There's, there's this family. They're, uh, they're allowing their children, child to make every and any decision, uh, what they're going to wear to school that day, uh, what they're going to eat for food, what to believe about God and religion, even what gender they are. Uh, this just doesn't make sense with the way that God made us. God made children ready and able to receive what parents teach as truth so that we might teach them the truth of Christ. So let me just say this. If you have been taught the Scriptures and Christ from a young age, thank your mother and father for teaching you rightly. And cling to what you have known to be true. If you are a first-generation Christian, you were not taught the truths of Scripture growing up, you have an opportunity to change your family history. So the context here as we get into these two uh, verses which become the heart of our passage is first that the world is crazy, and second, as we enter into this world and as we walk through this world, our truth is still the Scriptures. God has not changed. God's Word has not changed, even though the world has. Now today in Christianity and in America as a whole, and for the past 100 years, there has been an attack on the Bible. 
So a lot of what I'm, what I'm saying today and going to say, I have to say it because there has been a t- an attack on the Bible consistently for about a hundred years. Uh, today, the attack is different than it was, say, even 30 years ago, but it, it, it's, it's an attack nonetheless and maybe stronger than ever. Let me give you a quick overview. On one hand, you have the modernists, or we could say the theologically liberal types, who attack the authority of Scripture. Meaning the Scriptures are not authoritative. Meaning there's nothing in the Bible that can't bend and conform to culture. So if, if culture changes its mind on something, we can sort of turn the Bible in that same direction and change the truth of Scripture to mean something else. Meaning the Bible, taken at its word, in and of itself, has no authority in our lives. But rather, culture has authority in our lives. That's on one hand. On the other hand, are the conservative types or the evangelical types who have no problem with the authority of Scripture, but rather they have a problem with the sufficiency of Scripture. Listen, conservative Christians today crave experience. We crave to to sort of experience something miraculous and something powerful. And so we would prefer today to set our Bibles off to the side and close them, close our eyes and say, God, give me an experience. Speak to me directly somehow. Let me feel something right now. We would prefer to, uh, I don't know, you might prefer me to come up here on a Sunday morning and to not open the Bible and to just talk about my own experience with God this past week and, and, uh, and exegete that in some way. Or we might prefer to set aside the Bible and read a book about a little boy who went to heaven and came back and wrote about it. And so we're going to set aside what God revealed about heaven and listen to the experience of some individual. Either way, this is an attack on the Scriptures. To set aside the authority of Scriptures and to, to, to deny something that God makes clear is to deny God's Word. Or to say that God's revelation in Scripture is not enough and that I need something more is to say that God did not do a good job in revealing Himself through the Word. So with that said, with that as our context and why we are here talking about this today, let's look at the heart of our passage, verses 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to point out three things from these two verses. Number one, I want to focus on the character of Scripture. Number two, I want to focus on the competency of Scripture. And number three, I want to focus on the effect of Scripture. I tried to think of a a C for that third one, and I couldn't think of any word that starts with C, so I stuck with an E, all right? And I never try to rhyme or make my points fancy anyway, so it is what it is. Two C's and an E. The character of Scripture, the competency of Scripture, and the effect of Scripture. So first, let's talk about the character of Scripture. Look at verse 16. He says this, all Scripture is breathed out by 
God. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, what does that mean? Well, as we talk here about the inspiration of Scripture, which is what this is referring to, this is the word that we typically would use, some have said that the Bible is inspired, the Bible is inspired as it inspires you. So it's, it's, it's inspired in its effect. So for instance, uh, the Bible doesn't necessarily, uh, the Bible isn't necessarily the Word of God, but rather it contains the Word of God as it speaks to you. This is what some would say. So we read this, this verse, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and if you are inspired by that, if that brings about change and greater love for God as a result, then the Bible is inspired. Some extreme versions of this would be, uh, say, C.S. Lewis is inspired. If God were to take uh, mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and as you're reading it, God were to really speak into your life in some way, that that is the same kind of inspiration as uh, as the Bible. That's what some would say. Now, B.B. Warfield, on this word, God breathed in the Greek, B.B. Warfield says this, He says the Greek word is primarily expressive of not the nature or the effect of the word, but it's primarily expressive of the origination of Scripture. Meaning when we see this word God breathed, it's talking about the origination of Scripture, how the Scriptures came into being. So when we talk about the inspiration of God in Scripture, the the, the Bible is inspired, what are we saying? We are saying that as humans wrote these words, that what they were writing was inspired, was breathed out by God. A.A. Hodge, he talks about inspiration in this way. He says the Holy Spirit, as, as man is writing Scripture, the Holy Spirit first is inspiring this human's thoughts. And the writer then thinks in words. And his words then are an accurate, concise summary of his thoughts, which are divinely inspired. So therefore then, as the man writes pen on parchment in our terms today. As he writes, the words that he is writing accurately convey the thoughts which are divinely originated, influenced, inspired. And so then what we have is the Word of God. We have an accurate, inspired, divinely influenced Word from God. And so as much then as we can say Paul says to Timothy, we can then also say God says to Timothy or God says to you today. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 21 says that the prophets did not speak of their own authority, but they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Now notice it says in verse 16, All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture. 
Mark Dever, he recounts this story of this time when a young man was sitting in, in his office uh, who was going to be planting a church. And Dever says that the guy uh, said that he was going to plant his church uh, based on all of the words that Jesus spoke in the Gospels. So he said that the entire church is going to, be fo- going to be focused on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then he sort of lit up and he said, imagine, this is what this man's saying, imagine a church that is built only on the teaching of Jesus. Now, what, what Timothy is saying, or what Paul is saying to Timothy here, is that not just the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are God-breathed, but rather all of Scripture is God-breathed. Which means that Leviticus chapter 18 is as inspired as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. That all Scripture is God-breathed, is inspired. I'll give you a few examples of this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter says that Paul is writing Scripture. Paul later quotes Luke as Scripture. He quotes Luke and Deuteronomy together in the same breath, and he says, as the Scriptures say. Jesus quotes from every single Old Testament book, almost every single Old Testament book, as Scripture. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, Jesus quotes Genesis. Now, who do we believe wrote Genesis? Moses. As Jesus, though, is quoting Moses, do you know who he attributes the words to? He says, as the Creator says. So as Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, he attributes those words to God Himself. Just giving you a few examples of this. All Scripture, all Scripture, everything that you have in your lap right now is God-breathed, is the inspired Word of God for us today. Now, its character is God-breathed. Let's talk about its competency. Is the Bible competent? For your life today. Look at verse 16. He says, it's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We see here four, four statements. Two are positive, two are negative. The positives, cap, the negatives are in the middle. Look at it. It says, all Scripture breathed out by God. It's profitable for positive teaching, for a negative, for reproof, another negative, for correction, and then it, it's capped with another positive, for training in righteousness. Are you looking for knowledge? Are you looking for understanding? Well, then open your Bibles. It's profitable. It's competent. Are you, uh, is it possible that you could be wrong at, in, in some area of life? That you could be thinking, wrongly about something. Is that possible? Then open your Bible for correction. Is it possible that you are on a disastrous path? Has there been any evidence in your life that the path that you are currently walking on has been a little disastrous? Then open your Bible. Are you eager to grow spiritually? 
Do you want to look more like Jesus in your life? Then open your Bible. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. What that means is this. It means that there is something suitable for every single person at every stage of life. It means that for every instance of life, there is something suitable for you. No matter what you are facing, whether you are facing a trial, a setback, or whether you are rejoicing, the Bible speaks into your life. Wherever you are at, constantly. And it is competent. Now, when we think of training, I think a lot of churches try to be too creative. We think of how are we, how are we going to train our members? How are we going to train our people? And so we put on, some churches will put on fancy seminars and, and teach sort of like creative techniques to pray and, and certain words to say. And if you, if you do this or if you, if you repeat this or if you pray this way, then you'll really get God working for you or something like all sorts of crazy training this and that. How should we train? What, I mean, for a church, what, what should it look like as we think of training for life? When we think of going out into this world, when we think of New Year's resolutions and the good that you want to do in this world the next year, how, how should we train? When we think of like issues such as racism, all right, or classism, or poverty, or dealing with child abuse, and we want to be ready to go out into this world and speak and do and make a difference, what should our training look like? It's much simpler than we typically think. This is what our training, communally, this is what our training should look like. Two moms getting together, opening the Bible, asking, what does it say? Maybe reading a Bible-saturated book. Two singles getting together, talking about some of the unique challenges of being single, opening the Bible, and reading together. An older woman sitting with a younger woman, opening the Bible, teaching the Bible. What should training look like? Training looks like opening the Bible and reading God's Word, learning God's Word, studying God's Word. Together, corporately, what do we do each week? We are people of the Bible. Ligon Duncan, he, he talks about what a church should do when they gather, and he puts it this way. He says, when a church gathers, a church should read the Bible, a church should preach the Bible, a church should sing the Bible, a church should pray the Bible, and a church should see the Bible, referring to the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. We lift up the truths that we find in the Scriptures, and we then are trained. The Bible is competent. Now, not only is the Bible competent, but it is also effective, and this is where we'll close. Look at verse 17. The Bible is effective. It says, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. As you consider the world around us, as you consider maybe some New Year's resolutions, as you consider some of the good deeds that you would like to do in this world, how are you going to be equipped for these things? 
You would like to be a more generous person with your money. You would like to be a quicker forgiver. You would like to be more loving to those around you. You would like to get to know your neighbors. You would like to feed the hungry and stand up for children. How might you be trained for every good work? Here's how. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. It is competent and it is sufficient to train you, to equip you, it says, for every good work. Your head is filled with knowledge and understanding and wisdom. Your heart is then shaped by the gospel and your life then looks more like Jesus. How as a church might we be a blessing for Baltimore City? How might we be a, a, the, the kind of community in which people look at us and say, God is among you? How might we be a people who destroy racism in our own hearts and then seek to destroy racism outside of our walls? How might we be a people who destroy classism and some of these issues that exist? How might we love our neighbors and be a more generous person? How might we be at this kind of church in 2015? It would look like this. It would look like every single one of us waking up in the morning and eating this book, reading this book, being a Bible-saturated individual. And then we will be a Bible-saturated individual and we will be equipped for every good work. Could we be this in 2015? Now, I've uh, hesitated, even in my preparation, to give you any tips on Bible reading, because I don't want you to just legalistically follow some plan, or to think that my tips and the way that I do my own Bible reading and devotional time is in some way inspired, and if you do it a certain way, then you will have a certain kind of effect. But, since I'm a pastor, I did decide to give you some pastoral tips, all right? I'm going to give you four tips on reading the Bible in 2015. Number one, read the Bible in the morning and in the evening. There's something to be said about starting your day with prayer and Bible reading and closing your day with prayer and Bible reading. There's something to say for starting your day on the mountaintop, getting a glimpse of the glory of God through the truths in His Word so that you might face all that you're going to face in that day and then closing the day with the reminder of God's goodness and His provision and His faithfulness and His promises so that you might sleep. So read the Bible in the morning and in the evening. Number two, during that time, I would encourage you to pray through a psalm. Pray through a psalm. Here's what I mean by that. Just work through the psalms, maybe one a day. Take a psalm, take one line from that psalm, and make each line your own prayer. And literally, pray through a psalm. Thirdly, in addition to that, 
study a book of the Bible a few verses at a time. You might keep a thought journal. You might start with Romans or Galatians. A few verses at a time, deep, inductive study of the Word. And fourth, lastly, read chunks of Scripture. So in addition to the others, read, read through chunk like three, four, five chapters of Scripture at a time to get the big picture, to get the broad view of what God is saying. You might choose to read through the Bible in a year, which many people do. We actually have on our info table some copies of two different reading plans that would take you through the Bible in two different ways throughout the year. That might be very helpful for you. But either way you read the Bible, my challenge for you this morning is to read the Bible. Because here's what we believe. We believe that this book, these words, are God-breathed, the inspired Word of God for you today. And that they are competent and sufficient for every aspect of your life, for every stage of life, for every problem that you face. And that they are sufficient in equipping you for every good work. If we want to lead like Jesus, if we want to love like Jesus, if we want to serve like Jesus, let us be a people who read His Word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time that we might spend in Second Timothy and be reminded of Your Word to us, your self-revelation. God, there is enough in creation to know that you exist. There's enough in creation to know that we ought to worship you, yet because of sin, we need a specific, special revelation to know the gospel, to know Christ, to know redemption. God, we thank you for the fact that you have given us a wonderful revelation. Not just a word or a sentence or a paragraph or even one letter or book. But you have given us a thick book. A book that is clear enough for children to understand. And a book that is deep enough to keep men and women with PhDs scratching their heads. God, let us be a people of this book. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.